And please take your Bibles with me this morning as we turn to our study of Scripture and return with me to the book of Revelation, chapter 17. We have been studying this chapter for the past few weeks, and I want to try to finish it up this morning. I was thinking about this recently, and uh, our, just our understanding of the flow of all of this, so that we're not confused as to what's going on. Uh, you remember that the chronology of the tribulation period ended at the end of chapter 16. The seventh bold judgment was poured out, and the view of the future reality of Armageddon, Christ's coming, and destroying all that were rejectors of him on the earth and then reigning for a thousand years. So, so the, the chronology of the tribulation has already ended. And yet here in, verse, in chapter 17 and chapter 18, we're, we're getting not the, the macro view, if you will, of the tribulation as we've seen all along from chapter 6 to chapter 16 and the outpouring of all of the wrath of God through the seals and the trumpets and the bulls. Now we're, we're getting a micro look. Uh, a look at the, the intensity of what's going on under the final two judgments. But part of that even takes us back to the first half of the tribulation when at the midpoint of the tribulation, Antichrist becomes the one who sets himself up as God and the, and the false religious system has been destroyed and he now is the one being worshipped. Really, Satan behind him being worshipped. And we see part of that already going on in chapter 17 as we've gone on and understood who this woman is, this false religion going on. And John is seeing now in detail this destruction of the system of false religion that is in place during the tribulation, or at least during the first half of the tribulation. This false religion is working together with the beast. We understand who the beast is. We have gone over that time and time again. He is a person. He is controlled or rather energized by Satan himself. He is just one of the puppets of Satan. He is possessed by a demon from the abyss or the abode of Satan and his demons and the system of false religion and the political and economic um, center of this global enterprise is known as Babylon. Both of those come under the name Babylon. The religious side and the political and economic center. Both of those come under that name. So the woman is the spiritual side of Babylon. She is the false religion that is engulfing the world even in our day, even as it's being perpetuated by this ecumenism that's taking place in religion even in our day. Someone asked me recently, what is really ecumenism what is that and simply speaking it's just a desire it's a pursuit if you will to have outward unity regardless of differences an outward unity an outward direction regardless of the differences that come so so uh truth is relative there is no real truth all Whatever you believe and whatever you believe, as long as we come together in this outward unity, in this ecumenical kind of unity, it's good. Uh, It promotes tolerance at all costs, no matter what, even at the cost of real truth. And so ecumenism, uh, 
may work in some social endeavors, if you will, but it will never work with true religion and false religion. Mark that down. Lock it down in your minds. Get that known. Know that reality. True religion, the the faith in Jesus Christ alone, by faith alone, because of the Scriptures alone, to the glory of God alone, by the grace of God alone, will never, ever, ever join together and be compatible with false religion. Know that. Ever. Anytime you see something that claims to be true religion joining with what is clearly false religion, don't believe it to be true. It can't be. It is compromising something in order to do that of the truth. It's like trying to mix oil and water together. The two will never join together. You can stir them as fast as you can. You can put as whatever you want in there to try to mix them. They always separate. So too it is with false religion and true religion. Why? Because true religion, the, re- the faith found in Jesus Christ alone is born of God. False religion is born of Satan. Two will not mix. They are incompatible together. One is true One is false. And yet, even in our world today, ecumenism is rampant within religious circles. Just uh, like in the nursery rhyme, birds of a feather flock together. You've heard that. Many religious entities join hands like that. All being led by, in our day at least, by the Roman Catholic Church. They're leading the parade, if you will. It's what I call religious absorption. Religious absorption. I think, I think that's a, a better term for, for even ecumenism today. It's religious absorption. They're not intent on changing another religion. That's not really the desire of, of Roman Catholicism today. They're not intent on changing some religion, but rather absorbing them. Absorbing them into a unity whereby each embraces the other as valid and true. And this will be the basis of the end times religion during the tribulation. This religious absorption, this ecumenism that's going on, ecumenical unity. But God is going to destroy this religion. He will put an end to ecumenical unity. He will put an end to religious absorption. Because He only is to be worshipped. We know sitting in this room because of what the Word of God says, there is no other God but our God. And His people will worship Him as John 4.24 says, in spirit and in truth. And so in Revelation 17, we have seen greater detail, this, this micro look, if you will, concerning the woman Babylon. And we've seen the beast or Antichrist upon which she rides for a time, at least the first three and a half years. And to the remarkable shock of the unbelievers on the earth during the tribulation, Jesus Christ will return and he will come in power and he will come with the raptured saints of the church age. Say, how do you know that? Because verse 14 tells us that. He says, these, that is, 
the kings who join in with the beast will wage war against the lamb. The lamb will overcome them because he is Lord of lords and king of kings. There is no one greater than him. He is the one to be worshipped. And those who are with him, the called, the chosen, the faithful. You and I will not be merely standing by as spectators in the triumph of Jesus Christ when he comes to this earth, but we shall actually share in the triumph of Jesus Christ. And it will be glorious. You look around, and even Russ mentioned it, the news, and see what's happening in our world, and some people get in uproars and stirred up in their insides and wondering what's going to happen as if, Things are spinning out of control, and oh my goodness, what's going to happen if this happens, and A happens, B happens? Listen, you can get all of that out of your mind. It really doesn't matter what any of that stuff happens, because there is coming a day when Christ is returning. So we know the woman. She represents false religion. She rides upon the beast, and for a time is supported by the beast. And we know who the beast is. The Antichrist, who initially gives his help to this woman, false religion. She is the religious side of Babylon, as I said, the great harlot, and he is the political economic side of this kingdom of Antichrist. So you have Babylon in religion, and you have Babylon in a political economic world capital. We'll see that in chapter 18. In fact, you see it even in verse 18 mentioned when the woman you saw is the great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. There's a little glimpse at what chapter 18 is going to be all about. So having described this woman in verses 1 to 7 as we've already seen and then the beast in verses 8 through 14, we now come to the judgment that was spoken about in verse 1. Notice In verse 1, the angel says to John, Come, and I'll show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters. And then in verse 15, he says, And he said to me, The waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. The ten horns which you saw and the beast, these will hate the harlot and will make her desolate and naked. And he will eat her flesh and will burn her up with fire. Why? Because God has put it in their hearts to execute his purpose by having a common purpose and by giving their kingdom to the beast until the words of God should be fulfilled. The woman whom you saw is the great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. So now we see her end. Remember, this is the micro look at what we've already seen in a macro vision through chapter 16. The woman initially has worldwide support. Verse 1 says that she sits on many waters. Verse 15 clearly tells us who that is. They represent the world, the peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. Waters are part of this false religion. They are multitudes of people. They are entities across the globe. They are countries and and, uh, people of every nation and people of every tongue. This is that religious absorption that has taken place. And everybody now supports the woman who is leading the way. These are the non-elect. 
These are the non-elect. You say, how? why do you say that? Because remember what verse 8 says? The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to come up out of destruction or come up out of the abyss and go to destruction. And those who dwell on the earth will wonder whose name has not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. When they see the beast, when they see him supposedly rise from the dead because Satan has fabricated this wound that he is now healed from. We saw that chapters ago. They wonder at this. But these are those who, who names have not been written in the book of life. These are the non-elect. These are the ones whom are not saved. These are those who have not been chosen by God. They're Names are not written in the book of life. These are the peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues across the world. And, by the way, we are going to see this reference to the book of life again. Just go over to chapter 20 for a moment. When God and the final judgment happens before the throne of God, what we know to be the great white throne judgment. Chapter 20, beginning in verse 11, And I saw a great white throne, and him who sat upon it, from whose presence the earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. This is God in all of his awesome glory and presence on the throne. Verse 12, And I saw the dead, the great and the small. That doesn't mean in stature. That means those who were great by way of their worldly power and those who were meaningless by way of any kind of worldly influence. All that, everything in between, the great and the small and everything in between standing before the throne. And books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. The promise of God has been fulfilled. Jesus Christ said it. You will, be, you will have to answer according to your deeds. And God here is calling to recompense everybody according to their deeds. You see, those in Jesus Christ don't have to stand before that throne. Why? Because Christ paid for our deeds. Christ paid for the sins of us on the cross. But these will pay for their own deeds. They're, they're according to the deeds written in these books. And the sea gave up their dead. Verse 13. And, the, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. And they were judged. Every one of them according to their deeds. And death and Hades itself were thrown into the lake of fire. That is the second death. The lake of fire. Notice verse 15. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life. He was thrown into the lake of fire. Lake of fire is a reference to hell itself. And so these are the people from every national background. These are people from every grade of society, people from every political opinion that you can muster up every language and all of them in chapter 17 give their support to this false religion. She is sitting upon the people of the world. This is a transnational group. Across all national lines to support this false religion. And even in our day, the stage is being set for this. The promotion of relativism and the, the perpetuation of this idea that there is no truth, really. 
that everything is as valid as anything else, that tolerance is the only thing that is tolerated, and when anyone speaks against those things by proclaiming truth, you're the only one not tolerated. More and more of this is going on even in our day to set the stage through the ecumenical endeavors of the Roman Catholic Church and others who are being absorbed into the religious falsity that she perpetuates. She attempts to join hands with them to become one voice. And so we see here in chapter 17, this religion will be supported politically, it will be supported nationally, it will be supported globally. She will be a strong satanic deception. Is it any wonder that the Holy Spirit in verse 9, notice, says, Here is the mind which has wisdom. Here is the mind which has wisdom. This isn't prideful arrogance. This isn't a puffing up of oneself. This is skillful thinking according to what the Word of God says, according to what God has said ahead of time, so that you look out and you have skillful wisdom as to the events that are happening upon the global stage. This is wisdom. This is skilled thinking about this. Is it any wonder that he would say that in light of the reality that this False religion sits upon the globe, upon the peoples, the multitudes, the nations, the tongues. Nobody seems to have the discernment they need. There is a beautiful point here, though. You say, how could you find beauty in such grotesque ugliness? There is a beautiful point because notice at the moment for her greatest triumph, at her apparent invincibility, she meets her end. She meets her end. Verse 16 says, And the ten horns which you saw, and the beast, these will hate the harlot, and they will make her desolate and naked, and will eat her flesh, and will burn her up with fire. Seems rather incredible, doesn't it? This one who, having worldwide power, having global influence through the amalgamation of other religions, one who had long abandoned any pretense to the authority of Scripture, long abandoned the truth of God for a lie, as Romans 1 says, long abandoned any of those things so that now they're darkened in their heart to the point that they have rejected God and even claim that it's godly in their rejection. This woman has developed here, the ancient mysteries of Babel into the modern religious movement centered around one called Holy Father. Centered around a city called the Vatican City that raises up those who claim that they can absolve the sins of men. A place where truth no longer matters. What matters is ecumenical unity at all costs. And any nonconformists, especially during the tribulation, will be killed. Just like the official Roman Catholic Church of today that uses the political arm of the world to advance its ways, to trample out any kind of opposition, churches across the globe channel billions of dollars into her. Through her mysteriousness, through her foolish arrogance she sits as queen of the world harkens us back a couple weeks ago to nimrod's wife and the dreams of nimrod's wife coming true 
she truly is being worshipped as God. But it will not last long, and that's the beauty of this text. Because her end comes suddenly, her end comes catastrophically, and even from an unexpected source, rather interestingly enough. The ten horns which you saw, which we saw back in chapter 17, verse 12, and the beast, they come together. They both grow weary of this woman. They both grow weary of her arrogance and of her wealth. And they together, as this conglomerate group, come upon her to destroy her quickly and completely. Amazing to me. I was thinking about this in the history of the world. This has happened, by the way, in similar fashion on a local scale, not globally. This is global destruction. But it's happened on a local scale in our history of the world. I don't know if you know your world history all that well. You probably do, but you may remember Henry VIII. Henry VIII got tired of the Roman Catholic Church, and with his political and military power that he had in England, he decided he no longer needed to support the Roman Catholic Church. So in the church... In England, he began to proceed to destroy monasteries and seize assets. It survived that assault. It won't survive this one. It won't survive this one. The beast, in a somewhat shocking act of betrayal that we see here, will turn on false religion and completely destroy it. He will make her desolate. And in fact, it's kind of ironic because in chapter 18, in verse 9, you see even the kings of the earth, and I don't think it's speaking of these ten who have come together with the beast, but the rest uh, who committed acts of immorality and lived sensuously with her will weep and lament over her when they see the smoke of her burning. The false religion of Roman Catholicism, any vestige of ecumenical unity will be gone And this destruction of this false religion will spread across the globe to every corner of the earth. Any vestige of her influence will die. Chapter 18 will show us clearly the destruction of her in all its completeness in both sides. The destruction of the spiritual side that we see here and the destruction of the economic and commercial side. Notice verse 16 says, these will hate the harlot. The word hate carries the idea of disgust. They have an absolute disgust for her. I was talking with Debbie this week and thinking about this whole term of disgust. Uh, If you were at the Labor Day picnic with us, then you will understand exactly the word disgust when I mentioned to you a bag of chips that were on the table. Cappuccino chips. Are you kidding me? Disgusting, absolutely disgusting. I tried one. They were disgusting. I love cappuccino. I hate cappuccino chips. They were disgusting. I read some things online this week about the guy who suggested them. He's received all kinds of hate mail for that. I'm amazed, not really. They were disgusting. Something you loathe. Think of something you loathe. Absolutely loathe. That's what they're talking about here. They loathe this woman. 
They, they cannot stand her anymore. She, she is so hated by them that they strip her of her riches. They make her desolate. They, they ransack her of all of her goods. The, the antiquities that she has collected over the centuries, they now steal and even destroy them. She'll be completely exposed. That's what the word naked here conjures up in our mind. She is desolate and completely exposed. All the world, all the followers of her over time now see her for what she truly is. She is exposed both religiously, she is exposed morally. And interesting metaphorical terms, they will eat her flesh and burn her up with fire. This this metaphorical sense of making a meal of her. Totally devouring her. Burning her with fire. Absolute, utter destruction. It seems rather interesting that it is the sinful world itself that is the ones that were part of it herself, the ones that were under the guise even of the beast and the support and seeing the beast even come to rise and being at wonder over the beast and saying, oh, the beast, the beast, we we worship the beast because who can come against the beast? And now the beast and the sinful world itself brings this false religion to its final end. Seems rather interesting, doesn't it? Not a vestige of world glory left. What we know of the Roman Catholic Church today and any who have joined the ecumenical unity, the religious absorption that is taking place of today, all of those who have darkened the light, if you will, of God's divine revelation with lies of a man-made religion, all of those who brought men into religious slavery by man-made, imposed religious activity in, in the lie and deception that you somehow could make yourself righteous. The final manifestation of all of that, which has its roots firmly planted all the way back in the ancient Babel, reaches its final apex. And notice, God, God has it completely destroyed. Notice verse 17. For God has put it in their hearts to execute His purpose by having a common purpose. The coming together of these who hate the harlot is according to the purpose of God so that they together now have this common purpose. The beast and the ten kings, they have this common purpose. And they've given their kingdom to the beast until the words of God should be fulfilled. Listen, there's only one ultimate purpose for her destruction. All of it falls under the providential plan and wisdom of God. All of it. Through the lure, I think, of her massive wealth. By the way, I don't know if you know this. I was doing some research on this. There's been a lot of people that try to calculate the wealth of the Catholic Church. I was doing some of that this week, and I read a report 20 years ago, 20 years ago, the Catholic Church estimated wealth worldwide was approximately 7,000 billion sterling pounds. You say, well, that's not even American money. Come on. Okay, for those of us who 
needed help doing that, which I did, needed a conversion chart, that's $11.5 trillion. $11.5 trillion in money and antiquities and properties. The lure of that and the resentment against her make it abundantly clear that they simply are waiting for the right time to strike. These will hate the harlot, verse 16. They have a common purpose. God has providentially brought it to that time. And with Satan as the energizing force within the heart, the beast along with all those supporting powers, the ten kings that you see in verse 12 move, To claim the honor for himself. He wants to be worshipped. Remember that? That's the beast's goal. To be worshipped. That's Satan's goal. To be worshipped. In fact listen to the apostle Paul. As he reminded the Thessalonian church. Of this very moment. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Verses 1 to 4. He says now we request you brethren. With regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And our gathering together to him. That you not be quickly shaken from your composure. Don't, don't let things shake you into where you are. Don't, as you look on the horizon. Don't be disturbed either by a spirit. Or a message or a letter as if from us. To the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Listen, don't let any of those kind of nonsensical things worry you. Don't be disturbed. Don't think, oh my goodness, like Chicken Little, the sky's falling. We better do something. Don't think like that. Let no one in any way deceive you, verse 3 says of 2 Thessalonians 2. Don't let anybody deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed. Who's that? The son of destruction. Who's that? He's the one who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship. So that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. This is what you see happening right here in verse 17. See, verse 17 is a, is a micro look at the center point of the tribulation period. Because the, the beast and his worship goes on for a short time. Three and a half years. The false religion of Babylon is is in place from the beginning to the midpoint. Then he has this false resurrection, elevating himself to the place of people's awe. They destroy the false religion. He exalts himself as God. And the rest of the tribulation, the last three and a half years, he's the one being worshipped. And so you're getting a micro look at that right here. Verse 17 is giving us a close look at that happening and how that comes about. The removal of this woman, false religion, opens the door for the final religion of earth, the worship of Antichrist. And of course, through him is the worship of Satan. So the mystery has been stripped away. The sham is gone, if you will. And unashamedly, the final form of Babylonian worship is established on the earth for the second half of the tribulation under the Antichrist being worshipped. The beast, he has removed the woman. Apostate Christianity is at large. Under the woman, all ecumenical unity is at large under the woman. And all of that is destroyed and all worship 
is directed through this man of lawlessness, as 2 Thessalonians 2 says, ultimately to Satan, as we read about in Revelation chapter 13, verses 3 to 5. So all of them now, all of them, the ten kings, the beast, and even Satan, are all unknowingly united to carry out the mind of God, in verse 17. God put it in their hearts to execute His purpose. I love that. God's not acting evilly, but God is using the evil of men and even Satan's wickedness to do what God desires to be done. Men acting out of their own thinking to oppose God, and yet all the while not realizing that they are actually carrying out the divine purpose of God. This has happened in history. God describes the Assyrians in Isaiah chapter 10 and verse 5 as the rod of my anger. The Assyrian nation, God describes to the nation of Israel as the rod of his anger as he uses them to discipline disobedient Israel. The Babylonian Empire carried Israel into captivity around 586 B.C. Little realizing that they were the instruments of God's divine purpose. Being judged by God for their activity and their wickedness against Him. And yet at the same time being used by God as an instrument of His grace in disciplining His people back to Him. So too here the beast and the kings are all the unwitting instruments of God. Executing His mind in judgment against false religion. Their action lasts, notice verse 17, their action lasts only until the words of God should be fulfilled. That's sovereignty, folks. That's God's sovereignty over all things. Once again, we see it on display. God's word is the determiner and nothing else. It isn't willy-nilly. They go about doing whatever they want to do as if God has checked out and says, okay, wait, I, I need to check the calendar and see if that day has come. No, God is involved. God is overseeing. God is providentially watching and interacting and even sovereignly carrying out through the wickedness of men every single detail until every single jot and tittle of His Word is fulfilled. Everything. Nothing missing. All things that God has declared, mark this, all things that God has declared will, will come to pass. And it all will come to pass until every word comes to pass. God declared in Revelation chapter 14 verse 8, Babylon is fallen. That's what God said. Babylon is fallen. You say, well, we look on history, it doesn't seem to have happened yet. Yeah, true, but Babylon is fallen. In the mind of God, it's just done as a good deal. It's just a matter of carrying out every word of God. God has done and will do what He has promised to do. And then finally, look at verse 18. He equates the woman with the great city. And the woman whom you saw is the great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. And now John makes this, the angel makes this transition in the wording. When he goes from spiritual Babylon now to this political economic side of Babylon, which will come crumbling down in a vestige of smoke and destruction as God destroys even that before the return of Christ. 
So religious Babylon is destroyed, and now that which represents Babylon, the city, will also be destroyed. And so when you get into chapter 18, that's exactly what happens. It's only after that that you hear the multitude in heaven in chapter 19 singing hallelujah. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. His judgments are true. They are righteous. For he has judged the great harlot who was corrupting the earth with her immorality. And he has avenged the blood of his bondservants on her. And so they say hallelujah because her smoke rises up forever and ever. You see, this is the reality of what God is doing. The woman, the symbol of the religious system with her roots firmly planted in the city. City, which is reigning over the earth, also known by the same name. We're going to get to all that next time. But before we come to our time around the communion table, I don't want us to think it's strange that God would do something like this, that God would be involved in these kinds of things. Think it not strange that God would use his enemies to accomplish his purposes for good. And I want to just show you this for a moment as you contemplate the reality of that taking place in the tribulation with what has taken place for us as Christians. Go back to Acts chapter 2. And I hope this will help us in our worship this morning as we, as we think about what took place with Christ. Remember in Acts chapter 2, Jesus Christ had already been killed. He had risen from the dead 50 days after his ascension had taken place. And the day of Pentecost is upon them. Pentecost means 50 days after the day of atonement. Christ was crucified 50 days later, the day of Pentecost. And when the day of Pentecost had come, they're all gathered together in one place, it says in chapter 2, verse 1. And of course, if we've read through Acts, we know what happens. The Holy Spirit comes upon them, and, and there's all of this teaching going on from these people and, and in languages of people that they're hearing in their own language who have come from all over the world. These Jews who have been scattered throughout the world come to worship uh, during the feast and and now they're hearing this amazing truth in their own language by people who are speaking it miraculously. And there's confusion going on. In fact, people are starting to mock, it says in verse 13, saying they're full of wine. These people are just drunk. They're out of their minds. And Peter takes a stand with the eleven. Raises his voice and declares to them, men of Judea, and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you. Give heed to my words. For these men are not drunk, as you suppose, for it is only the third hour of the day. It's ridiculous to think that it's too early. Nobody does that. But this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. And it shall be in the last days God says that I will pour forth my spirit upon mankind and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your young men shall see visions, your old men shall see dreams. Even upon my bond slaves, both men and women, I will in those days pour forth my spirit and they shall prophesy. Peter's saying, listen, what you're seeing right here is prophecy taking place. God speaking to you directly through these people. 
saying to everyone, you need to be saved. Verse 24. In the name of the Lord, you shall be saved. Men of Israel, verse 22, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, notice, which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man, delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross. How did you do that? By the hands of godless men and put him to death. God's plan, God's predetermined plan, so that men who believed in Christ would be saved, and God accomplished that plan through your wickedness. That's what Peter's saying. God accomplished the good through the wickedness of your hand. God raised him up, verse 24, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held by its power. Verse 29, brethren, I am constantly saying to you regarding the patriarch David that both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. And so, because he was a prophet, he knew that God had sworn to him an oath that in the seat of his descendants upon his throne there would be one he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of christ that he was neither abandoned to hades nor did his flesh suffer decay this jesus notice god raised up again therefore having been exalted to the right hand of god and having received from the father the promise of the holy spirit he has poured forth that which you both see now and hear You see, what you're seeing now is the act of God upon you. And notice their response in verse 37. And when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart. And they said to the Peter and to the rest of the apostles, What shall we do? Recognizing that they had put to death the Son of Glory. Peter said to them, Repent. Repent. You want to know what you need to do? You want to know what you need to do if you sin against a holy God? You need to repent. You need to turn from your sin and let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you too will receive the Holy Spirit. And many did that. Verse 41 says, as many as 3,000 souls were received into the kingdom that day. Peter went about preaching. God allowed him to have the privilege of healing this man in chapter 3. People are confused about that. They begin to worship Peter and John. This man is clinging to them. Verse 11 says, While he was clinging to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them at the so-called portico of Solomon. This is up by the Temple Mount again in Jerusalem, full of amazement. They're amazed at Peter and John. And but when Peter saw this, he replied to the people, Men of Israel, why do you marvel at this? Why do you gaze at us as if uh, through our own power, through our own piety, we made him walk? Why do you do that? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and Jacob, the God of our fathers has glorified his servant Jesus. 
whom, notice again, you delivered up and you disowned in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you disowned the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. You put him to death, the prince of life, whom God raised from the dead. You see, you had a plan in the wickedness of your heart, but it was all part of God's providential plan. God providentially planned and had providential oversight and sovereign oversight so that he even used your wickedness for his good. Your response simply needs to be one of repentance. Notice chapter 3, verse 19. Repent, therefore, and return that your sins may be wiped away in order that the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. You see, we think about communion. We think about God's providential oversight even during the tribulation and the judgment of the false religion. And we think about our communion time and God's providential oversight and why we come. Listen, you and I sit here because God providentially by the hands of wicked men nailed his son to a cross. And we fellowship together as a family, not because of any kind of magical formula. We fellowship because of a, by way of family unity through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. All brought about by our wickedness. Christ hung there not because of his own. He hung there because of our wickedness. Our sin. Our deserved penalty. So we come and we think about Christ. Think about the cross. We think about our wickedness that nailed him there. That not only was it at the hands of wicked men in the time and moment in history, but it was at the heart of our own wickedness. Our own sinfulness that was nailed to the cross with Christ. And that's what we think about this morning. Take just a moment before Randy comes and leads us in a moment of song before we take the elements. Take a moment and just think about your own heart. Think about the reality of God's sovereignty over all of this and your own wickedness put Christ there. If you don't know Jesus Christ, we would exhort you to repent and believe. He's coming back. And you'll either be judged according to His righteousness or you'll be judged according to your own sinful works and one day those books will be opened. Let's bow together. Gracious God of glory, our Father above, who is over all things. It is clear in your providential care that you are unfathomably wise. That alone, just the, the reality of you, providential, your providential oversight in the, in the affairs of even wickedness to accomplish your goodness for the sake of of those whom you are saving is overwhelmingly amazing to us and shows us that this book, the Scriptures, was not written by the mind of men. For men would never accomplish anything that way. We're too bent on our own pride. We're too bent on puffing ourselves up to be praised. We would never be humiliated to the point where which we would write down those words that would say, that we were the ones who nailed you to the cross. But that's exactly how it was. And without your gracious searching for us, 
we would never have looked to you. So Lord, it is amazing what we see to come in the future history of the tribulation and the destruction of false religion and how you have put it in the hearts of even the beast, the Antichrist, and those who are joined with him and even Satan himself to destroy false religion that they may be exalted only to their ultimate destruction as it fulfills your very word. Nothing is thwarted by, uh, by them. None of your word is untrue. We see it, Lord. We see it in the future. We've seen it in history as we look to the cross. We know the ultimate purpose was to save those who would believe upon Jesus Christ. And you accomplished all that. And we are here to worship you for that. So, Lord, this morning in our time of worship around the communion table, may it be an honor to you, a glory to you, a exalting of you, and an eclipsing of anything about us. May you be the one seen for the gracious gift of Jesus Christ, your Son, who died for us. In Jesus' name we pray.